I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Crazy youngsters, and welcome to part four of episode 56 of Chart Music. Here we are, well, here I am in the cellar. Actually, quite a nice place to be if you're thinking about serious things. Um, you, you might be asking why I'm here on my own, and well, it's because everyone else involved in Chart Music, so that's Sarah B, Neil Carnet, Simon Price, Taylor Parks, and David Stubbs. Um, they're all in the house and having you in the house as well means that we're now breaking the rule of six so uh, we decided that one of us had to self-isolate and uh, they all decided it should be me so let's kick on let's take you back to hang on a minute the rule of six isn't even a thing anymore and I'm the host of this podcast and this is my fucking ass and Boris Johnson is a cunt oi where is that? Nah! You bastards! The movie was flashbacks. The lady who was doing the dancing was Jennifer Beale, and of course it was Irene Cara. A guy who's had a great year in 1983 in the States and in this country is over here. It's Adam Ant and it's Puss in Boots. Stuart Goddard in London in 1954, Adam Ant is Adam fucking Ant. <laughs> After scoring two number ones and seven top ten hits from 1980 to 1982 as the overlord of the insect nation, he split the ants up last year, kept Marco Peroni as his right-hand man, and immediately scored a number one with Goody Two Shoes in June of 1982. After the follow-up, friend or foe got to number nine for two weeks in October. He closed out the year with desperate but not serious, only getting to number 33 in December. At the beginning of this year, he assembled another band around him, consisting of former members of Fingerprints and the Q-Tips, and commenced a tour of America, which was cancelled for two months after he suffered a knee injury on stage in Cleveland, and he spent his downtime working with Peroni on his second solo LP, Strip. This is the lead cut from that album and his first new material for nearly a year. It shot straight into the charts at number 21 at the end of October and took two weeks 
to get to number five. And here he is in the studio with his new band and their very new shiny leather trousers. <laughs> Neil's mentioned quite a time or two that, you know, he always wonders what Mark Boland's early 80s career would be like if he'd have lived. And I looked at this and thought, hmm, I, st- I stroked a chin. Mm. and sucked a thoughtful tooth. Yeah. I'd ask him, but he, he's over there with his head into a big bowl of crisps, so <laughs> I'll ask you instead, Simon. I, I've interviewed Adam um, a, a couple of times, and I've, I've, I've worked with him um, on, on a couple of things, and uh, um, one thing that he's often mentioned is that he's probably one, one of the few artists of his generation who's not influenced by David Bowie. He's quite mm. anti-Bowie. Um, he, he quoted this thing to me that... Um, one bit of advice McLaren gave him, uh, Malcolm McLaren gave him was, was you'll never learn anything from Bowie, Sonny. <laughs> and and um, I can kind of understand what McLaren was getting at in that mm. all Bowie was, was the sum of stuff that he'd learned from other people, which you can probably say by a lot of artists. But the point being that um, for Adam Ann, it's all about Mark Boland. He's mm. such a huge Mark Boland fan. In fact, um, these days, um, his gig usually finishes, uh, or at least encores, with a cover of Get It On. Yeah. Um, and, and you can see that, um, that he, he wasn't um, a new romantic star. He was a glam rock star. He was yes. maybe, you know, the sort of last glam rock star. And this, this record, it's kind of a glam rock record. It's an 80s glam rock record, not in mm. the sense of Motley Crue or anything like that. But it is almost what what would happen if someone like, well, I'd say Bolan, but it's almost more basic than that. It's almost Alvin Stardust or, dare I mention, Gary Glitter. Mm. Um, what would happen if somebody of, of that level, who made those kind of really sort of um, rudimentary glam, glam pop records, um, was thrown in a studio with an 80s producer? Because um, one of the big changes between the Ants and this is is in the drums. Um, yeah. uh, obviously, you had the whole tribal Burundi thing on Kings of the Wild Frontier in 1980, which is 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 a very organic and very physical sound. But here he is in '83. Phil Collins on drums on this yes. album. Um, production from you Hugh Padgham. Yeah, Hugh Padgham producing. Hugh Padgham, one of the pioneers of the gated drum sound. That reverb technique that ended up dominating the second half of the decade. Mm. I'm normally not a fan of that gated sound. I don't mind it here um, because it kind of works with that almost nouveau glitter band sound that's, that's going on. Um, it's it's kind of um, literally pantomime here because, yes. uh, you know, Puss in Boots. Um, but previously, uh, Adamant videos had essentially been been pantomime you know dick turpin and prince charming and all that kind of stuff yeah and 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 here he is sort of uh um uh, kind of re- reprising or, or resuming that uh aspect of, of of his of his career um i i remember the time not really loving this record um mm. just thinking oh well you know he used to be kind of good but this is i wouldn't switch the radio off if it was on but i'm not going to rush out and buy it either no but i i have to admit that um Having watched this episode, it's just stuck in my head. I've been walking yeah. around going, boots, <laughs> you know, bursting out everywhere. Keep it Yeah, yeah. It's it's very, very catchy, it I've, is. I've got to say. It's, it, it is somebody nearing the end of their chart relevance, mm. but it's not it's not a bad one by any means, I would say. No, not at all. Yeah. I, before I talk about Adam Ant, so I'll just mention Get It On. I've had Get It On in my head for the last week. And I was thinking, why? I haven't played that record. 
for about a year. Um, then it struck me last night. I opened the fridge, got out this bottle of uh, Sainsbury's balsamic dressing, <laughs> and it says on it, tangy and sweet. <laughs> I've been seeing that every day for a week, and it planted get it on in my head <laughs> subliminally. Um, but yeah, the, the obvious problem with this record. You got a tin of Telegram spam. So <laughs> oh, fuck it. You hell. cupboard. Are we, are we go- is this the humour we're going for now? <laughs> Solid old peasy action. Yeah. All right. <laughs> see, see, it's just it's low humour. It's low humour. Anyone can do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the problem with this record, yes, is where to go, right? Where to take this? That that's the thing. I mean, for a start, he's at that ominous point in any 80s pop star's career where he's just trying to slightly tone down the flamboyance mm. right like i mean only slightly the video to this is just as crazy <laughs> yeah, as yeah. his earlier videos yeah. but it's not it's not as lush and carefully styled you know it's like he's trying to get a bit more bit more natural and raunchy mm. um and they all did it at some stage, all these 80s people. And it was always right at the point when they were just over the hill. Yeah. He's still very image-orientated. Mm. So he's trying to play up that kinky, naughty side of the ants, right, which yeah. was always there. Mm. But he's trying to turn that up. Whipping my valise and all that stuff, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it's now he's trying to use that as a replacement for the impact of the full pirate outfit, right? But... For some reason, Adam was never less sexy than when he was trying to be explicitly sexy. Yeah. And never more sexy than when he wasn't. Yeah. Maybe. I haven't thought about that last bit at all. I just said it. Um, but it's it's interesting, but it is slightly painful to watch this struggle to to change and progress like an artist. Yeah. You know, not that Adamant is inferior to a, a, a great artist. I'm not saying that. But it's you can't. It's not the same. It doesn't. It, the thing that makes all those ants records so amazing, obviously, is the way that they use rhythm uh, almost as melody, mm. and the melody is just like a weird yeah. garnish on the side of the rhythm. Um, and on these solo singles, there's a bit of a pulling back from that because the the Brundy drums is an old sound now, mm. but they haven't got a replacement idea, so. What you end up with, it's just a simple pop song, which is not that amazing, because it ain't got a Burundi gimmick. Um, <laughs> it's it's still all based around the beat and the percussion, because that's all they can do. Yeah. Uh, but the beat and percussion is less exciting, strangely, despite the presence <laughs> of Phil Collins. So it all sounds a little bit second rate by comparison yeah. to the earlier records. And he obviously knew it, because the next thing you know, he's doing Apollo 9 and trying to sort of retreat a bit back towards that old sound. Yeah. It doesn't work. Like, it never does. Uh, on a song named appropriately enough after the most boring of the Apollo <laughs> missions were. It's the one where they just went into low Earth orbit and tested the lunar module docking and undocking procedure, which is really the short straw to have drawn if you're an Apollo astronaut. <laughs> well, apart from Apollo 1. Yes. So what you hear on this record are all these attempts to take this non-song and do whatever's necessary to liven it up. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciate the lack of preciousness there, um, if you want to look at it that way, and the lack of fear about appearing gimmicky, which is never something uh, of which one could accuse Adamant. <laughs> 
but I just don't think it completely comes off. You just end up with all these stop-start bits and hysterical mannerisms and all these, like, restless key changes, you know, trying to keep it interesting. Mm. But the strain is showing, and it's not a bad record, but it's not a particularly good one. Yeah. And, you know, you have to say it, it, it sounds like time is beginning to run out. It's like, look, you had a great idea, mm. or someone had a great idea, and now it's gone. And because of the path you've chosen, you are only what the little girls choose to make. Mm. And soon that's going to be redundant. Yeah. Um, and I love Adamant, but that's the way it goes. Part of what was great about Adamant's years is that you always knew it wouldn't last. And this was going to happen next. Yeah. You, know, you have a bit of a drop off where it's not quite as good. Yeah, the clock struck midnight for Prince Charming. Yeah, and then out on the street within th- within three or four years mm. of his majestic peak. Yeah, you know that's the deal. People go on about the Jam splitting up in 1982, and that was a huge deal. But Adam losing yeah. the Ants was also a very significant yes. moment, I think. You know, and yeah. um, initially yeah. he he will have thought he made the right call because obviously Goody Two Shoes massive number one hit, and he probably thought oh, yeah. this is going to be a piece of piss. You know, probably thinks mm. who who needs those ants yeah, anyway, yeah. especially with Marco Peroni. Who needs the ants when I can perform with Cannon and Ball? <laughs> I mean, we've already talked about Billy Jean. Of course, that performance where he does the moonwalk for the first time at that Motown 25th anniversary yeah. show right. yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. Adam Ants on that singing "Where Did Our Love yes. Go," which is just bizarre. Yes, so he was still a sort of he was still box office, or at least considered box office by people who booked. Big TV spectaculars, you know yeah, what I big mean? Big American TV spectaculars. Yeah, yeah. He's obviously tried to make a go of it in America this year. He moved over there, didn't he? Yeah, he's, he's going out with Jamie Lee Curtis at the time, so, you know. Yeah. There's that, I suppose. <laughs> and this is this is the era when Slash, uh, the young teenage Slash, used to babysit Adam's girlfriend's kid. Mm. Um, do you, yeah, you know, you know about all that. But, um, I mean, how much is in a name? Because the ants uh, in their probably final incarnation was basically whoever Adam decided they were. Yeah. It's not as if there, there was this sort of like, you know, timeline that's just four stripes, you know, a sort yeah. of a red, red, yellow, green and blue stripe along the Wikipedia page. There are lots of stripes on the yeah. Ants uh, Wikipedia timeline, let's put it that way. Um, so really, he, he could have called this band the Ants and nobody would have blinked. It's just, you no. know, whatever. It's, you know, as long as Marco Peroni's there, wrote wrote the songs. Mm. But just just somehow, it it just seemed, seemed that uh, something's missing, even though tangibly it's, it's just a bunch of guys. Yeah. yeah. And also just as if that sense of being just over the brow of the hill wasn't strong enough. His hair is visibly on its way out. Oh, here. well, yes, it is. I mean, yeah. I, I thought about it. Howie B, right? Howie B had a single in the late 90s called Angels Go Bald 2. Right? <laughs> and and uh, I thought about this a lot while watching this this clip. There's something very poignant, I think, about a good-looking man going bald in the public eye, right? Yeah. Especially a man who cared a lot about image. And Adamant is a very good-looking man. Yeah. And he's a man who cared a lot about image. And, yeah, his his hairline's being battered by the recession, as so many of us were in 1983. It's like Dimitar Berbatov. It, yes. <laughs> but in, in fact, in the same way, in the, in hair loss is always hardest on the chaps with very pale skin and very dark hair because mm. the, the contrast really accentuates it. Um, yeah. But, of course, nowadays, a man in his position would have a transplant down Harley Street. It'd take yeah. off 
six months between albums mm. uh, get it reseeded um you know actually no it, it wouldn't even be a secret he'd put pictures on his instagram of him <laughs> yes. with a, a purple scalp covered in dots yeah. giving a thumbs up you yeah. know yeah, off, yeah. off to uh, pounders in hounslow yeah yes. yeah giving a little <laughs> plug because they gave him 20 percent off um, yes because it's all out in the open. Like, you know when you watch football and they've got those pitch-side ads that just say, hair transplant in Turkey. Um, yeah. And there's a little picture of the surgeon and he's called Dr. Cynic. <laughs> there's a name you can trust. I know it's not pronounced like that in Turkish. But I spoke to someone who'd been to Istanbul relatively recently and apparently the city really was full of blokes walking around with bandaged heads, sightseeing, <laughs> like combining a city break with a, a visit to to Dr. C. But back then, you you couldn't really do it. No. And you, you couldn't wear a wig, um, and you couldn't shave your head unless no. you were in the National Front yes. or the Flying Pickets. Um, yes. And so he's just got to place it carefully Use a lot of hairspray and hope for the best. Um, and he, overcompensate he, with a mullet. So it looks yes. like the old things just slid down. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And he's right to do it because the early adopters who got those primitive hair transplants, it, it mm. didn't look wonderful. You know, Gary Newman's glued on doll hair. Yeah. It's, mm, Russ Abbott's failure. It was, <sighs> yeah. So Adam just held on tight as long as he could and then. Uh, coincidentally got really into wearing hats yeah i think the really poignant thing about his outfit because in this one he's got a sort of like a powder blue sort of like if show what he wanted decided to go new romantic yeah he's, he's got one of their coats and uh, it's almost a success coat yes it's a it's a, it's a partial success coat yes yeah yeah, yeah. tight black leather trousers and he's got a, a red silk blouse thing with some ridiculously long cuffs you know i hope, hope he doesn't wear, wear that when he's on his lathe <laughs> well, you say ridiculously i would totally wear that obviously mm. but yeah 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 but the the really poignant thing is is he, he's got one earring of a, a skull and crossbones you just look at it and just go oh you, you used to be adam and the ants <laughs> <sighs> It's a shame because when I started at school, there was a few kids there, mainly girls in the fifth year, who were seriously into Adam and the Ants to the extent where they do the Adam Ant logo on their folders and everything. And that's a fucking intricate logo to yeah. to, to put together. You've got to be a massive fan. Oh, with the well, the feathers and the ant. And yes. All that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a jam logo. You can piss that out your arse after about 10 minutes practice but the adam and the ants one that was devotion to the insect nation yeah fair play and to those people who were into adam and the ants at my school they were they were the ones who were just just miss punk and now he's he's this i mean he's been on the telly the day before he was on itv in the afternoon the uh the prince charming review mm-hmm. he's still box office but more for what he was than for what he is yeah it suddenly dawned on me if all those Granada kids' pop shows had still existed in the 80s, that's where he would have ended up. Those Muriel yes. Young, you know, like, get it together and lift off and all that stuff. Super solid. Yeah. There would have been a home for Adam on those programmes because that's where yes. all those guys used to finish. But it, mm. even that had been taken away. So he had to just go and live in yeah. luxury with a, a fabulous-looking girlfriend or whatever he had. 
It's got to hurt when when you're that kind of pop star who has sold millions of his ant music for sex people, and suddenly he's selling ant music for six people. <laughs> that's that's, that's got to be tough. So the follow up strip was put out a couple of weeks ago, hovered up to number 41, but this very week it's dropped to number 53. Strip didn't get into the top 40. That's mental. Mm. And Live Aid is coming. Oh, yeah, well, the less said, the better. Just one band went straight to number one in the singles charts. Who were they? Duran Duran! That's right, and this is how they did it in March this year. Finally out. Is that, that's the fucking door again. Jesus fucking Christ. Who could that be at this time of night? Ah, it's none other than rock expert David Stubbs. Uh, Come hello, on in, David. Hello, hello. All right. What kept well, you? Well, well, I thought I'd... Uh... Well, I'd look in, as one does. The uh, oh. snow is gently falling outside, and um, it's, I'm... It's um, lovely. Peckish for some cranberry sauce and perhaps a, a dash of eggnog. You've come to the right place, Ducky. Come Excellent. and sit on the settee. We're watching the 1983 Ooh. Christmas Top of the Pops, don't you know? Right, I'm plumped up. Did you have a good Christmas, Doc? I did. I had a lovely Christmas, actually, you know. Good. Yeah, I got nicely into the spirit of everything. You know, I do sort of feel that kind of, like, yeasty Dickensian thing coursing through my veins. <laughs> and I sometimes affect to be a Christmas cynic, but I'm not really at heart. Uh, I got into the, yes, the, 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 the bells jingled and... Um, oh. Oh, yeah, the, the, and the spirit prevailed. I heard you watch the Christmas Top of the Pops. What the fuck's yes, wrong with you? Yes, I did. I decided to. It's Jesus. the first time I've done it in years because I've always had this thing, and it's kind of relevant in a sense to sort of chart music and Top of the Pops, that, you know, that what we discuss is is something that's extinct. You know, it's an extinct mm. era that, that, you know, I often think there isn't really, because there isn't such a thing as Top of the Pops anymore, there isn't such a thing as pop anymore that has that mm. kind of centrality in people's lives. You know, that, as I said before, you know, when Wet, Wet, Wet were number one for weeks and weeks, it was like it was like a kind of a monsoon you know it was like you know yes. everyone was everyone got wet 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 you know everybody yes. was aware of it and now nobody it's a completely underground concern now whatever's you know yeah. the charts and so it has that sort of different relationship you know i guess to you know pop crazy youngsters and oldsters alike and so yeah so i watched it it was obviously it was covid compromised it was presented mm. by clara Amfo and um Fern Cotton in the kind of customarily inane way, but not actually in the kind of despicably inane way that you get with like your Edmondses and your Bates with their kind of nun jokes or anything like that. It was just, no. you know, just straightforward links. But I think what was interesting overall is that it wasn't, in a sense, massively different, as quite as massively different an experience than than the top of the pops of the 80s and 90s in some ways. You had a couple right. of really cracking tunes. 
you had absolute rubbish. You had even you had something for the mums and dads, i.e., Craig David. Oh, you know, no. <laughs> I feel so fucking old. <laughs> you even had a sort of novelty thing. There was some sort of little beardy, genetic cranky type creature that some Australian busker that had a freak hit or whatever. And I, I thought that sort of thing was extinct now, the novelty hit. But no, mm. I think they're beginning to creep back in. It seems um, yeah. absolute cracker at the beginning. Um, Joel Corrin, Eminem, which I really, really liked, just as a sort of piece of bouncy sort of housey thing, just as irresistible hook. I thought it was great. And Eminem has got this wonderful sort of like, you know, kind of queer presence or whatever. And I, like I said, I just imagine my granddad. I mean, if you thought it was seven days jankers for Roy Wood, I mean, it would have been a sort of, you know, 30 year stretch for for this chap. (laughs) Yeah. And then in between, you know, it's a little bit kind of mediocre. You know, you've got these sort of, this is horrible contemporary sort of singing that's very enervated. And it's just like, you know, man up. Mm. I just find slightly irritating. Then you've got the whole housey things where the, the, the drop is kind of chugging in for about half a mile away around the hills, you know, like <laughs> the little drop that could. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and it's really, I mean, the, co- the, the, the sets and the costumes actually I just found were kind of really quite rich. It was almost like, you know, making up for a sort of host of multitude of mediocrity in some respects, but they're always really quite imaginative, interesting. You know, they were actually very, very good. I found them quite sort of, you know, but but the worst bits for me were when the um, the white males coming in and sort of presenting as yeah. something slightly superior than pop. So Harry Styles, you know, he's all grown up. He's not in his um, um, you know his boy band thing anymore. He's got a guitar now, and he's, uh, he's oh, taking seriously. Right. Jamie Cullum, of course, you know who you know descends yeah. the kind of you know pop earth, but of course he's got his jazz pedigree and his kind of studious blandness. But the worst is like Louis Capaldi. And apparently he spent 78 consecutive weeks in the singles charts. I'm about to break in the previous record. Well, yes, of course, Ed Sheeran. And it just means that there's Ugh. always somebody like that that's sort of willfully anti-style and, you know, uh, that's, you know, ultra sort of hetero, reassuringly kind of white and male and wearing a blank T-shirt if it's just something you threw on. Because, of course, you know, on the one hand, a false modesty or oh, it's just something I threw on. I don't really go for that whole style thing. I'm not very stylish. Imply, you know, it's kind of above it all, all that garishness, all that queerness, you know, and it's just like, I'm just white, I'm straight, I'm normal. And isn't that a relief? And, you know, there's that slightly mm. worrying thing. I'm sure Neil would probably get on his high horse. That, that, yeah, there is a lot of that, that, you know, there's a couple of counterweight, this miserable counterweight in contemporary pop, you know, to the sort of more outre things that are going on. Um, so that was kind of annoying. So at the beginning, you had, in the beginning, you had the wonderful thing. You had Joel Corey and Eminem. And then at the end, you got like Louis Capaldi to reassure us that, uh, you know, all is calm, yeah. all is white. Oh, well, well done, David. Thank you for doing something I didn't want to. <laughs> It'd be the televisual equivalent of going on Facebook to look at photos of all the girls you used to fancy at school with, um, with French flag filters <laughs> yeah. on, on, over them. Yeah, yeah. I guess this was weird is that the obviously Top of the Pops added a whole dimension to the kind of the pop lives of anybody that was on it, and it's just not a dimension that's available to people anymore. So, David, yeah. Christmas of 1983, mm-hmm. what memories are sparking in that keen head of yours? Well... At this particular point, right, so this would be lunchtime, presumably, isn't it? Top of the pops, it would have been lunchtime. It yeah, was, two o'clock. wasn't it? About two o'clock. I would have been eating meat for the very last time in my life. Ooh. I had a turkey dinner, and then that was it. And then after that, I resolved to go vegetarian. I had a boiled egg sandwich in the evening, um, which was, I suppose, my, you know, and, 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 and that was that. Um, I decided to go vegetarian, actually, because, um, me and Simon Reynolds used to hang out a lot, you know, at Oxford and used to go around sort of various dining halls, whatever. And I just remember one time sitting next to him and he was demolishing a steak and kidney pie. 
<laughs> with such obscene relish and it was the most disgusting thing i'd ever seen there were five was were hanging off his teeth it was like a kind of throwback he wasn't the... teasing it he was having oral sex with oh it, it was just you know it just seemed you know it just seemed to me the kind of you know we're re- re- recalling to bestiality basically and i just thought <laughs> we're better than this we're surely better than this so i thought right i'm going to try out you know being vegetarian for a bit and um and I stuck with it. So, yeah, that, 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 so basically, I, as this episode was going on, you know, I was um, tucking into my last ever turkey dinner and my last ever wow. sort of flesh slain in anger. Poignant memories. Yeah. And then gen- I suppose generally culturally my position. So I was, a, I just started my second year at university. Um, I was beginning to get clubs and things going. This episode generally I would have seen myself as the kind of the mark of a certain decline or whatever from the high expectations that built up in 81 and 82 mm. you know and in fact by this point rather pompously you know and i wasn't shy of telling anybody this that the only things i was listening to were imported funk 12 inch singles and 20th century classical music and he would said really dave you're great aren't you and i said yeah, yeah <laughs> yes well you know oh, and your mom said oh that's nice our day yeah <laughs> Do you want a turkey sandwich? <laughs> no, I'm afraid I can't do that. Um, yeah, about this time, my um, you uh, obviously you, you have what were called scouts, basically people who come and clean your rooms. And there's this nice old lady came around, and during the holidays, because um, I was into the you know the class, 20th century classical music tip, I'd left behind one of my Stockhausen albums. I didn't bring it back home with me for the Christmas holidays, and um, while I was away, the first time the scout came in after the holidays, started chatting me and says, oh, you know, I, I, I tell you what you really like, I, I had played that Stockhausen album that um, you left behind. I started playing it and I thought it was very interesting. And I was like, you see, you see, the common person gets this stuff. It's just that they're not exposed to it. And of course it was all a bloody prank. You know, an next door neighbour and God, God was all giving her. And I was going off for ages. I thought, Vindication, you see, if only normal, ordinary, humble people could hear this music without the mediation of the commercial, se- you know. Yeah, so I was well and truly punk there um yeah but i I think now though listening to this episode i suppose i look at it in a slightly different ways let us return to it smith finally out of his widow twanky gear and now dressed like an 80s buttons tells us (laughs) what a performer adamant is before pivoting to a video of the only single to enter the charts at number one this year is there something I should know by Duran Duran? Oh, and by the way, just a little note for Mike Smith. Um, first of all, drag is only embarrassing if you don't commit. Mm. So getting out of it halfway through and going, it's mm-hmm. nice to be back yeah. in men's clothes. Yeah. yeah, all right, mate. And also a scarlet blazer with the sleeves rolled up to the elbows and a dicky bow <laughs> with piano keys on it. It's not men's clothes. <laughs> no, it all is. Right? Yes. It's cunt's costume. <laughs> it is the costume of the cunt. We covered Duran Duran in chart music number 39 when they did Careless Memories in May of 1981. And a mere 18 months later, they were catapulted into the top rank of pop, sweeping the board in the 1982 smash hits Reader's Poll. In the same month that poll came out, this was recorded as a stopgap single between the Rio and Seven and the Ragged Tiger LPs, and according to legend was written by Nick Rhodes after the rest of the band were pissed off about another of his songs, Too Shy, giving Kajagoogoo a number one, while Duran Duran hadn't had one yet. 
It came out in March as the follow-up of Rio, which got to number nine in December of 1982 and entered the chart at number one, knocking Total Eclipse of the Heart out of the box, the first single to do so since Beat Surrender by The Jam four months ago. As they've been too busy playing five dates at Wembley Arena for the first leg of the Sing Blue Silver World Tour to drop into the studio, here's another chance to see that video, directed by our old mate Russell Mulcahy again. That's mad, isn't it? Duran Duran in 1983 fretting about not having a number one yet because, you know, by this time they could have recorded the sound of them throwing a bin down some steps and it would have Mm. been a massive hit. Which is kind of what's happened here, I think. (laughs) They only had two British number ones. And that's ridiculous. Yeah, isn't that insane? Mm. This is the first one of them. Although, weirdly, considering it was their first number one hit, this is almost like the forgotten Duran Duran song. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It was like, it's not so well remembered, possibly because it's a little bit unusual for them. It's one of the few singles they did that isn't an obvious rip of a mid-70s Roxy music. Um, Mm. It's got their usual giant drum beat and the the cokey sub-funk bits, but it's really based around this Mm. sort of 60s guitar riff. And, you know, it's, it's just one of the few songs of theirs that sounds like... Uh, a traditional song rather than something that emerged out, mm. out of a jam. Mm. You know? I mean, I'm not mad keen on it now, but I would at the time have truly, truly detested it like, you know, like Hitler or whatever, in the sense that I was involved at the time in Oxford in a sort of pop culture war. I was running a club that was sort of attempting to be a bit more kind of avant-garde, contemporary funk. Meanwhile, up the road in Oxford, he had the fucking era club, you know, which loads of people went to because it was playing the five things that nervous white kids wanted to dance to, you know, and like capitalist cunts that they were, you know. And, you know, and I actually had a confrontation with them. She was at, um, oddly enough, she was a daughter of John Houston who went to my college. Um, I won't name her beyond that, but um, she kind of got a bit angry at my kind of defiant avant-garde philosophy, you know, my club. And, you know, she said, I suppose I wanted to bop to Duran Duran. It's my right as a consumer to bop to Duran Duran. And you're denying me my rights. That's so narrow-minded. <laughs> And I I kind of, and I just gave a sort of rather windy and pompous, uh, you know, sort of uh, declamation or whatever. But, you know, I play things like, I play Sister of Mercy, then Trouble Funk and Scratching Simple Mind. It was deeply idealistic. And, of course, no bugger came. I mean, really, you know, I was presiding grandly over a kind of, you know, regular club of tens of roughly zero um, because of my principles, you know, and I thought that was absolutely right. And uh, Good for you, David. Did you did you dance on your own? I did dance on my own, like, like, like Yes, of course you did. Yeah, yeah definitely. Like Billy Idol. <laughs> but the thing about the club, I mean, obviously, I think that a lot of the reason, it was kind of on the edge of um, Oxford town you know beyond the town center and it was a gay club and you know there's a lot of homophobia around the time it was on a weeknight and but it was weird what happened is if you're approaching you could see right from the actual sort of door the entrance door right up to the dj booth or whatever it was a straight line and so what would happen is like the, the owner of the bloke this guy called peter he'd, he'd see people coming and he'd say right get the dry ice going <laughs> Turn the music up, you know. And so they'd see people would nervously peer in. They'd see all this kind of smoke. They'd hear these kind of banging tunes. They'd hand over their two quid. Then they'd get in and the smoke would rise and they'd realise they were the only people in the place. You know, yeah, got them. So I suppose because of that, you know, and so for me, I mean, even listen to it now, it's just, 
I just, I just found it very big and boxy and empty and clumsy and sort of bereft of that kind of wonderful skittering nuance that I was used to from people like the Associates and Simple Minds and ABC. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, and, I, and, and as Taylor says, it's that very 60s thing. It's almost like, let's try and, you know, strain the buttocks of their mediocrity and shit out something a bit <laughs> Beatles-like, you know, bow, 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 bow. That's the kind of thing George Harrison might have done, you know. And, and, and I can't, I can never get beyond that, I suppose, really. I mean, like a lot of people, like George Michael, I came to like a great deal towards the end of his career and towards the end of his life. And it's similar with Simon Le Bon, mm-hmm. actually. Um, I found him very, very likable in, in, in interviews, especially later on. Apparently he felt guilty at not being a bit more political retrospectively and stuff like that. And it was just a very, yeah, he's just a very engaging kind of character. I also like slightly later Duran Duran music, but this at the time, no. Mm. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. Yeah? And I did at the time. It, in fact, it's sort of astonishing how much I like and don't resent the members of Duran Duran as well. Mm. Like I, to me, they're a really likable group, and I know a lot of people really disagree. I, I like mm. how uh, John. T- I only found this out recently. John Taylor's real first name is Nigel, um, yeah. and he was just like, "Yeah, well, well fuck that." Uh, no, John is fine, thanks. Um, I love how <laughs> Nick Rhodes uh, was the only one with the with really strong Brummy accent. Like of all the members of Duran Duran, who's going to sound like that? It's Nick Rhodes. Um, I love how they got into doing monstrous quantities of coke mm. and never came close to being rock and roll casualties. Man. And I love how they still look great, even though they're all about 91. Mm. It's like they're almost as, have you seen them lately? Almost as creepily mm. ageless as Aha. Who mm. are the real right. child's blood guzzlers of of <laughs> Have you seen Aha lately? Fucking mm. hell. Just the same. Just the same as they were in the 80s, which is really weird because you'd think that spending six months of the year in darkness, they'd be all puffy and sallow. Mm. Uh, but no. <laughs> but it's something we've talked about before with David Essex, that thing of being mm. fortunate, good-looking, successful, and cocky with it, and still somehow coming across as likable and decent company, which I think Duran managed to do, and it's a really tough one to pull off. Because it's easy to feel well-disposed towards people you really admire who work very hard and were very talented and all all that crap, you know. But with Duran, you just think how fucking brilliant it would be to be like these guys. Just enough talent, lots of luck, and very few complications. Just the perfect mm. recipe for a, a life of pleasure. And you don't begrudge a thing. It's bizarre. But I like this record too. I really do. Mm. I just It's not that it's a, you know, a, a milestone in the history of popular music, but I don't know what there is to dislike about it. I think there was another thing with me when it comes in with like, you're about as easy as a nuclear war. And I thought, come on, nuclear war was so four years, nuclear war, that's so four years ago. You come poncing in now, but you should have been in there in the basement in 1980. (laughs) Some of the bloody girls on film. That was my email address for a while. (laughs) There was a, there was a company that bought up domain names or whatever they are so that uh, your email could be like, you know, Marvin at whatever name you chose off the list, .com. And one of the ones they had, out of the thousands, was uh, nuclearwar.co.uk. <laughs> so I chose that. And so for a while, my email was about as easy as 
at <laughs> nuclearwar.co.uk <laughs> until they went bust oh, in the oh, crash. Oh. All the accounts were just trashed, mm. so everything was lost forever. I mean, mm. it's a turn of phrase that I've used on uh, my nieces and nephews when they've been playing up. Um, but they don't understand it, though. But thick cunts. What's a nuclear war? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's a wrong lyric as well, you know. It, oh. Because, you know, 1983, the year of Abel Archer, when we discovered that a nuclear war was quite easy to sort out. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to put too much effort in mm. to start a nuclear war. Yeah, pretty much, yes. <laughs> Press a button and... Duck for cover. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Talking of which, Taylor was asking who would hate Duran Duran. Um, mm. My answer is practically every male at my school. Yep. Oh, all yeah. fucking hated Duran Duran. Yeah. Only the nice girls from the posh estate were into Duran Duran. And it's very easy to see why. Number one, they're dead lush. Uh, number two, they've got just enough artiness about them, yeah. as can be seen in this video. Yeah. They can do all that Channel 4 rubbish and get away with it. Yeah. But one of the jokes that was going round at the time was, you go up to your mate and you'd mime the pressing of a button, and you'd say, what's that? One of the standard answers was, oh, is it a nuclear war? It's like, no, that's Duran Duran making their next single. Yeah. Oh, yeah. take that. Yeah. Despite the fact they actually were quite a good band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were an actual band and they were still getting that shit. Yeah, so I should have just handed you a bass guitar and gone, all right, smart ass, play Rio on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other slur as well is that they were obviously all gay. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's why they all had supermodel girlfriends. Yeah. That's yeah. what gay blokes do. Yeah, you just, you just can't win, can you, with Duran Duran? We've got to talk about this video, haven't we? Yes, we must. The only thing I grudgingly admired at the time was the quality of the video. I just thought, damn, this is impressive. Mm. They'll slow-mo walk in those split screens. This will never date. (laughs) (laughs) And it's got uh, a lot of emoting upwards, which is Mm. like the real current thing in 1983. You have the camera above you. You have a Mm. fan blowing your hair back. And you emote <laughs> upwards. And it's very flattering, that angle. Especially for someone like Simon yeah. Le Bon, who had to watch his figure. Um, it's like mm. the old MySpace bathroom shot. You know, like camera held up in the air and pointing back down yes. at you. So you instantly lose two stone and one mm. chin. Yes. And, yeah, you, you try and look all desperate and pleading, like you're fighting your way up from the depths, you know. And he does it with <laughs> some real gusto as well. And there's lots of awkward steps as well. Yeah. You know, one of those where you think, oh, I can do these steps two at a time. <laughs> and then you realise you need to stretch a little bit more than you first anticipated. Yeah, it's not one of their more expensive looking videos either, this one. No. It's all studio, well, mostly studio bound. And the bit that isn't is obviously done in like a clearing in a wood just off the, the motorway outside London, you know. But there's a lot yeah. going on in it. All of it bullshit, mm. but I would rather have that bit of sort of pseudo artiness than slushy romantic. Like what you get now, if you have a Duran Duran type band now, it's all lyrics about like if they were going out with you, their fan, what you would want them mm. to say to them about, I love you so much, or oh, my last girlfriend really broke my heart, and all this sort of stuff. Duran Duran, mm. you never got any of that. It was meaningless no. bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Posing as poetry just all the way through, which is fucking great. And aloofness as well, you know, as opposed to ingratiation, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, so many of their videos are bullshit with 
slightly that insulting suggestion that what you're watching mm. does mean something and is somehow part of a, a larger unseen narrative, right? Like in New Moon on Monday, they're resistance fighters in a, a fascist Britain or something. And in The Wild Boys, they're like outlaws in this post-apocalyptic branch of Comet. Um, <laughs> and it, but this is just a, a shameless scattering of random bullshit just all over the place there's no no logic to it all and you're just expected to pick the bones out of it like simon le bon dressed as a co-pilot for air columbia (laughs) wandering around he's got like a a sparse forest of dark prongs rising up out of the floor so he looks like uh he's microscopic uh, stranded on a balding scalp (laughs) possibly adamant he (laughs) does a sort of pursed-lipped, shrugging face on the line, maybe next year, maybe no go. Mm. That makes him look like a young Trump. Have a look, he really does. Yeah, Yeah. he goes up the stairs a bit too tall for him, like like an elderly dog. He's next to a a, a chair with a pyramid on it, um, while his his friend fiddles with a sextant. A small boy dressed as Windy Miller carries an orange football (laughs) through a cot. Uh, businessman in bowler hats, man. Uh, huge clouds of white powder blowing off a table <laughs> like someone's opened the window in Duran Duran's hotel. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're fired. Mm. Um, <laughs> the, the boogie woogie bugle boys from Quality Street for the, <laughs> with the emphasis on bugle for the uh, nuclear war line. Uh, nude mm. baby and computer in dubious proximity. That baby could wipe out the global computer banking system with a single swish of its finger. Think about it, man. And if you want to feel young, that baby is still not 40. <laughs> oh, and a, a dog snuffles in a briefcase to get some treats placed mm. there by the video director. Um, mm. And then the best bit is where Simon looks momentarily confused as though all this were real. <laughs> like, oh, what's going on? Um, and then you just close with uh, token shots of the, the drone and worker members of Drandra, mm. including, very briefly, the one who isn't good-looking. I mean, this is not just bullshit. This is this is Merda del Toro. This is, this is Minotaur shit. You, you have to take off your hat in, in honest admiration for this. Because it's a bit like those Christmas perfume ads, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. It's calculated bullshit. It's just stuff they throw at you that appears, you know, yeah. that might have I mean, significance. The, the way I see it, I think Duran Duran always understood that a little bit of bullshit is mm. toxic. And mm-hmm. a lot of bullshit, a, a, just a fucking raging torrent of bullshit <laughs> is kind of spectacular. That's right, yeah. It's, it's still not as good as the Wild Boys video, though, which is my favourite because it's got yeah. Rusty Lee in it. <laughs> Mm. (laughs) it genuinely has Birmingham represent she turns up she turns up on the the video screen that the big animatronic head is looking at on her way back from the fire Um, it's like the last surviving fragment of the old world or something you know from before Mm. the the event it's like the last human face you'll ever see (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, if you do a quiz at that point and say, which person that appears in this video eventually joined UKIP? And you'd be like, (laughs) Rusty Lee. (laughs) 
Fucking hell. Anything mm. else to say about this? You mentioned earlier on about Simon Le Bon and his weight problem. He's one of these people that always had this association of fatness. You know, I mean, it's like Frank Lampard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Funny, I wish I was that fat. Yeah, yeah it's true. He's, yeah, I know, that, that is fun. The people did it, no, it stuck to him, yeah. Yeah. The other great thing about this record, by the way, is that when you're at school, you could use it as a call and response track so that when he sings, please, please tell me now, is there something I should know, you could shout back, yes, you're crap. Um, <laughs> you should always make the lads guffaw, you know. Yes. The girls would gently punch you in the arm. Um, <laughs> it sits alongside those other great call and response classics like, do you really want to hurt me? Yeah, uh, yeah. my dad used that a lot. Do you think I'm sexy? Yeah. Yes. And, and also, ah, ha, 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 lords. I know this much is true. Yeah. It was, I'd say it was like associated London scripts in our school playground. Isn't it? The press dubbed our school playground the laughter factory. <laughs> Certainly people would often leave with aching ribs and tears rolling down their faces. Various reasons. So is there something I should know? Spent two weeks at the top before it was deposed by a single that's coming up very soon. The follow-up, Union of the Snake, got to number three in November, while Seven and the Ragged Tiger spent a week at the top of the LP chart earlier this month, and they'd have to wait until May of 1984 for their second and final number one, when the Reflex spent four weeks there. Is there something I should say that'll make you come my way? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. My mate bought a toaster. We go through celebrities' Amazon purchase histories so you don't have to. Keep calm and love Dom Jolly novelty key ring yeah, and fridge that. magnets. Yeah, I love that. The G-spot. <laughs> the good vibrations, guys. Green dot laser sight rifle gun scope. I've bought that quite a lot of times, I think. Right, okay. The sex doctor's guide to keeping it hot. Ah, oh, interesting. Did another child come along nine months later? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Loads of great apps up now and new ones dropping every Monday. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster from Great Big Al. Duran Duran for number one for two weeks, then they went to Australia for three months, and now they're back in the country doing live gigs. Uh, back in the top of the box studio on Christmas afternoon, a Bucks fist, sheer glamour, and when we were young. 
clean white pillow Watch the clock as it slowly rolls around Rolls around Bates on the balcony with similarly tinseled up youths tells us that Duran Duran have just come back from three months in Australia where they lost all six test matches in English cricket's darkest moment. (laughs) They actually spent the time finishing off Seven and the Ragged Tiger, filming the video for Union of the Snake and kicked off the Sing Blue Silver tour there. (laughs) Fucking hell, Sing Blue Silver. Always annoys me when I see that written down. Yeah. Why can't it be our big tour or whatever? Yeah. How about this one? Duran Duran live. He reminds us that it's Christmas afternoon again and tells us to prepare for some sheer glamour as he introduces When We Were Young by Bugs Fizz. We covered Bobby G, Cheryl Baker, Jay Aston, and Mike Nolan's Bugs Fizz in Chart Music 11 when they were at number one with The Land of Make Believe in January of 1982. Since then, they've had another number one with My Camera Never Lies in April of 1982, but they started this year with their first single, Not To Make The Top 10, when Run For Your Life only got to number 14 this April. This was the follow-up to that single, which was put out as a standalone track when the band's management, concerned that the group's new LP, Hand Cut, hadn't performed to expectations, felt it was time to reach for a more adult market. To this end, they gave front-person duties for the first time to Jay Aston, (laughs) the sex one in the group. It was put out in June, entered the chart at number 23, and then soared 13 places to number 10, but could only stay there for another week before slithering downward, like Jay Aston on Bobby G in the uh, If You Can't Stand the Heat performance. And here they are in the studio, and I'm guessing this is one of the brief flare-ups of Dadisfaction in this Christmas Top of the Pops. It's, yeah. uh, it's not Ooh. gone too well yeah. for the dads, You've got the Christine it? Keeler yeah. sort of sitting on the chair parody there going on yeah yes yeah and of course the old basque business um it's funny i i don't remember this track from the time mm. um i have to be honest um no it's, it's curious obviously you know what they considered to be a sort of adult graduation it faintly reminds me of like rather surprising people started doing dystopian concept albums around sort of 80 81 you know with when synth pop became ubiquitous people like mm. mike bat did one Edgar Broughton Band did another one as well about um, the idea of the kind of global Shit, banking wow. system being wiped from a kind of central computer and chaos ensuing. You know, and everybody had this, you know, associated, you know, the coming of like synths with um, impending dystopia in the mid to late 80s. I mean, and that's got the kind of feeling, and also they, everything's done up in black and white, you know, to reflect the binary, new binary reality of the future and all that carry on the way they are here. Um yeah, and it's 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 all it's got that kind of Lena Lovitch, Hazel O'Connor feel to it, you know, and sort of tick tock, tick tock. But I mean, it's weird because the yes. song is about the idea of somebody that's packed off with growing old, basically. You know, when we were young. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's kind of imagining though that you know that, that, that themselves in the year twenty twenty, their looks artificially preserved or whatever, but kind of moving in stiff tick-tocking type movements or whatever because they're kind of sort of mechanically preserved in some way. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I like to think that the meaning of art isn't the exclusive prerogative of the creator, and it can be open to interpretation on the part of the listener, so I hope I'm not, you know, but um, Mm. I I don't know. It's either they've done battle in a theatre of war 
when the war is with that implacable foe, time itself. I don't know, and that kind of irradiated <laughs> feel that you get from the video as well, as if slightly confused by it, I must admit, in some ways, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, Books Fizz, uh, uh, trying to mm. reach for a more adult look. And um, how have they gone about this? Well, Bobby G is essentially come as the man mm-hmm. from Del Monte. Yeah, the man from Del Monte, he says <laughs> nothing mm. of interest. <laughs> Cheryl's sat the wrong mm-hmm. way on a chair like a cool teacher. Uh, Mike Nolan's off to the side of the dinner jacket with his hands behind his back like Prince Philip. He's looking like his family have been made to do a piece at a posh dinner party <laughs> and he's <laughs> hating every fucking minute of it. And yeah, uh, Jay Aston's gone for mm. the sexy ringmaster look. Trying to sound like Lena Lovage, but oh dear, the dart seems to have landed <laughs> in Larry the Lamb. <laughs> Sheer mm. glamour. Yeah, I mean... I must say, when I saw this, my first thought was, I mm, thought not yeah. 9 o'clock news had finished. Yes! <laughs> I mean, look, they had a major problem once they got sexy and became fucks biz, in that only 50% of the group were capable of communicating raunch or mm. even the condition mm. of possessing sex organs. And mm-hmm. even then, only in this slightly strange and corny way, right? Like Jay Aston and poor Mike Nolan could sort of pout and pose. And it was at least possible to imagine them having sex, possibly Mm. not with each other, but, you know, (laughs) at least thinking about sex. Whereas the others, I mean, Eggs and Baker has got that Mm. congenital mumsiness going on. Yeah. So she's got this, like, carefully styled 1931 Berlin courtesan get-up, slightly undermined... By the fact that she's tied some tinsel around her wrists. Yes. <laughs> it's Christmas, eh? Hey, why not? Yeah. Um, and yeah, Bobby G. I mean, the G in Bobby G clearly does not stand for grind or grunt <laughs> or groan <laughs> or groin. No, it stands for gubby and it yes. always will. Uh, but J is absolutely flinging herself at this. Like, mm. finally, we're allowed to tackle some adult-orientated material, you know. Yeah, but can... too adult. Fucking bit about being dead owed. Yeah, but it's like she sees this as her chance to express herself through her mm. performance, right? And if she's going to have to dive off the side of this sinking ship sometime soon, as she mm. did, uh, yes. my God, she's going to give this last desperate shot Mm. everything she's got you know uh yeah it just so happens that everything she's got amounts to a a comical impression of hazel (laughs) o'connor and (laughs) and the ability to pout in half profile one way then turn around it's four years out of date and four years in the early 80s that's that's a long 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 time it's not like the difference between 2007 and 2011 you know 80 to 83 you know 79 to 83 sorry i can't even do my maths but nearly four years you know anyway a long time Yeah. Yeah. And Mike just looks like he's serving, (laughs) like he's bringing a tray over for the others in whatever Weimar Republic Sports and Mm. Social Club this is meant to be. (laughs) Cheers, Mary, Mm. which is his actual middle name. (gasps) Is it? Oh, yeah. Mike Nolan, yeah. 
Well, I mean, according to my secret source of research, <laughs> which not everyone has access to. No. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they, they are basically <laughs> shabba. Yes. There's definitely tad, of that, yeah. I mean, if they are in some way respect contemplating their own future, perhaps, you know, because age comes to all of them, it's funny to think that their actual future involve kind of mud wrestling for their name and reputation with a sometime burger van owner. But, uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still, it, it is better than the video, <laughs> which is fucking <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> yeah. The video is to 1983 what Neat Ribena is to a black current. <laughs> it's yes. just, yeah. I mean, and those they do those C-3PO head movements in that as well. Yes. You know, like in the early 80s, like if you wanted to look alienated. Yeah, like when the Boomtown Rats did, mm. like, clockwork. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah, you move your head and your stiff arms, like, ooh, I see R2. <laughs> yeah, it's yes. really bad. <laughs> but to be honest, all these... When you sit and watch these uh, rarely seen Bucks Fizz videos, I mean, rarely seen yeah. at the time, because they were always available to be on your television programme. It didn't matter. Oh, yeah. Um, Crackerjack. Yeah. But those videos are really enjoyable viewing now. Yes. I mean, one thing you can say... Some of them are are pretty out there. I mean, one thing you can say for this this operation is that the quality wasn't always there, but somebody was always trying really hard. Yeah, because it's it's essentially Jay Aston singing to a a mirror, and um, (laughs) she puts it down, and it's just some old crone, and she looks horrified in in an early 80s video style and fashion. But then cuts to what appears to be the the band playing a <laughs> punk festival in Chernobyl. <laughs> it's got that proper not the nine o'clock news punk parody video backdrop of electricity pylons. Yeah, and a, a purple sky. Bobby and Mike are, are dressed up like... If Malcolm McLaren had opened up sex with Laura Ashley <laughs> instead of Vivian Westwood, <laughs> that's what they're wearing. <laughs> Bobby's wearing a T-shirt that appears to be a cross between a Christmas tree and an octopus. Very fucking strange. Mm. It's like, what kind of adults are you reaching for here? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it is. Weird. I mean, what's interesting is that it appears to have been fairly successful in Europe, Europe-wide. You know, the European territory, or whatever, as it was. Which oh, uh, I can kind more. of see. Actually, it has that sort of slightly. Mm. Look, I mean, look, I love. You know, Europe Optelix, Yellow, DAF, all that kind of thing, you know, I'm absolutely down with. But obviously there was that sort of slightly sort of slow, clumsy, pigeon pop as a second language Euro pop, you know. And I think it sort of chimes in, because it's a bit slow, because it's a bit naff or whatever, it kind of chimes in perfectly just there, you know, and and just hits the the sweet spot. But it is a weird way to go, though, Mm. isn't it? It is a weird yeah. direction to take because you think what in their minds was the best possible end point of this approach, right? Because when a group yeah. like Bucks Fizz are sailing off into the distance, generally their their vestigial audience is children and older people, neither yeah. of whom are traditionally all that big on, you know, affected scowling pseudo-Germans mm. in their knickers. I mean, or, or on <laughs> sort of lumbering pomp bubblegum, which is what this is, you know. Yeah. Um, and there is now no viable route by this point uh, by which they can access 
the the burgeoning goth market. It's, no. That's not going to happen. So, <laughs> oh no, man, if only. But, so, but they need to get this into their heads quite quickly, right? This attempt to sound futuristic, there is no future in it. And at this no. stage, they really they'd be better off just getting some big colourful jumpers on and doing songs about a dog called Bongo because that's the only cunts buying Bucks Fizz I mean it's incoherent like it's a cul-de-sac it's for a futurist exercise it's very outmoded but it probably had a sort of it was probably at least for the time being a short term success commercial success of sorts but that, yeah but what can they do after this how do they develop that where do they go yeah oh it was the, the biggest hit this year yeah it was their last mm. gasp wasn't it did I mean they had a few. They had like what was after this? Talking in your sleep. Was that after this? Mm. Yeah, London Town. <laughs> these are not these are not their best records. I mean when they say they they're aiming for an adult audience, they're basically saying, Well, well we want yeah, to carry on time being on radio two. Vince Hill oh, yes. was being played on radio two, I mean, it's Yeah. Yeah, and you don't you don't have these sort of, you know, monolithic synth records mm. of, uh, you know, with this chorus that's supposed to sound like it's coming crashing in through <laughs> your roof. You know, this is not how to get on the radio mm. too either. Mm. It's all a bit tragic. No. I decided, though, that I do quite like uh, Cheryl Baker. Because I never used to, because she used to annoy me on the mm. telly and all that sort of stuff. Never admired her work as a TV presenter. But I... <laughs> I like her a lot more after witnessing this debacle. <laughs> I can only admire this combination of uh, professional commitment and a very obvious mm. awareness that she can't hide the fact that she knows that this is preposterous bollocks. Right? <laughs> like you would, mm. she sat there on her backwards mm. chair, and when all the others get their close-ups, they're really going for it, trying to do the the, the moody alienated stare. Yeah. She's really mm. obviously trying not mm. to giggle. I like it really because it just sort of it lets down the performance. But I mean, what so what? You know, it, it wasn't convincing in mm. the first place. And I like the no. fact that she can't even pretend to take this mm. seriously, and that it's a job of work and. As soon as the whistle blows, she's going to be back in her slippers <laughs> with a massive glass of white wine. Mm. And she's Rita Crudgington from Bethnal Green again, you know. And balls mm. to the lot yeah. of you. <laughs> so the follow-up, London Town, only got to number 34 in October, but they'd have a far worse 1984. Rules of the Game was put out in late November of this year and would take two months to get no further than number 57. The rot was stopped in September when Talking In Your Sleep got to number 15, but Golden Days only got to number 42 in September. And a year from now, they'd all be recovering from a tour bus crash after a gig in Newcastle, which left Mike Nolan in a coma for four days. think by now that they'd have enough money to buy those girls some decent costumes, wouldn't you? Bucks Fizz there, well done to them. One of the best dance tracks of 1983 came from Lionel Richie. Got to number two in October. This is how it went. Let the music play on, play on, play on. 
The camera dollies back from the stage and ascends to the balcony, where Smith, who has been found a woman who is dressed sort of just like him to stand next to, speculates that the women of Buck's Fizz should be able to afford some trousers by now. But it comes out as an insult. (laughs) I know, he gets it all wrong. It's just, it's that old gag about scantily clad performers, about how they couldn't afford any clothes. But he can't even do this sort of hack... Sunday night at the London nope. Palladium material without totally mm. fucking it up. He says, <laughs> he says, surely they could afford, someone could afford to buy them some decent costumes. Yes. <laughs> Whoever designed those Bucks Fizz outfits is just going to hear that. They're going to really have their feelings hurt. Yeah. Mm. Mm. On Christmas Day as well. The bastard. He then tells us all about, in his opinion, one of the best dance tracks of 1983, All Night Long, by Lionel Richie. Born in Tuskegee, Alabama in 1949, Lionel Richie was a tennis prodigy who got a scholarship at his local college, but was intending to study as an Episcopal priest before dabbling with a sort of college band. In 1968, he joined the Commodores as a saxophonist, and by the time they were signed to Motown in 1972, had become an occasional singer whose songs had started to appear on their LPs. They scored five top 40 hits in the UK, including Ease, Big Daddy's Theme, which was written and sung (laughs) by Richard before they hit the jackpot in 1978 when Three Times a Lady got to number one for five weeks. By the Aventis, Richie was beginning to branch out, writing Lady for Kenny Rogers and recording Endless Love with Diana Ross, and was encouraged by Motown to put out his own solo LP, which came out in October of 1982, and after it reached the top 10 in America and the UK, was put under pressure to leave the band, which he did, apparently against his will. At the end of August of this year, he put this single out, the lead cut from his second LP, Can't Slow Down, and the follow-up to My Love, which got to number 70 in May. And while it got to number one in America for four weeks, it spent three weeks at number two here, held off number one by Karma Chameleon by Culture Club, and a single that will be appearing soon. Here's the video, which was produced by Michael Nesmith and directed by Rob Rafelson, who did Head, Five Easy Pieces and The Postman Always Rings Twice. And oh yes, this is fucking Huxtable Disco, this song is, isn't it? Very much so. But I mean, it it was actually startling when this song came out, I remember, that that Lionel could do this. Mm. Because between, what, 78 and 82, Mm. he writes six different American number ones and all of them are gooey sincere ballads and he could have done that forever and disappeared probably but it's it is records like this and dancing on the ceiling that give him a bit more longevity and appeal to to younger people it's a conscious effort to make an international party anthem you know american pop is universal Mm. global language i.e colossal cultural appropriation so three three years before drake is even born richie is bringing jafakan accents to the top of the charts Um, (laughs) and good on him i guess um probably there should be loads of problems with this song there is a lot of stealing going on the influence of michael jackson's massive including the stealing of african bullshit um yes you know um 
he, he, he calls his friends at the UN to get some African phrases and learning that Africa yeah. uh, is, a, is a continent that contains thousands of dialects and it takes weeks mm. to come up with a workable translation. He just makes up some gibberish that kind of sounds Afro-Caribbean. Yeah. And he got away yeah. with it. Yeah. The reason being is it is as sensitive a portrayal as Afro, of Afro-Caribbean culture as I don't know what made the red man red is of Native <laughs> American culture. But throughout the record, the point is no harm. I'm done. No. You can't get angry because it's, I think it, it's really great pop. I mean, it, and, and I know that because this is one of those records that has a Pavlovian response attached to it. Mm. If I sung to you, all night long, all you'd night. have to sing back on that. Yeah, you do. You have to. You yeah, can't it's let the it law. pass. Yeah, it's the law. So, you know, um, there's space for everyone in this record, it, it, even though, you know, it has dozens of backup singers on it, including Richard Marks, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, it's just, huh. I just think it's, 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 a, it's a good party record. It's a great pop record. I mean, I do prefer my party records with a bit of tension. Mm. You know, I like my dancing and partying to be have a sense of escape to it. There's not a lot of that here, to be honest with you. It's smooth, just like his voice. His voice isn't... His, that album that this song comes from... Virtually every track tries to rip off Michael Jackson to the mm. point where, you know, you get a song with a stupidly big Eddie Van Halen style metal solo on it. Um, <laughs> but his voice isn't cutting like Michael Jackson's. It can't do tension. It can't do the things that MJ does. There's no tension yeah. in the record. There's no conflict. It's mm. as open to everyone as Cool and the Gang Celebrate. There's no real mm. motivation for the party. It's just time to party. Yeah. And any troubles that are hinted at can, can just be danced away. But catch his fuck, stays in your head, smooth, frictionless pop. Um, mm. You can't get upset with it. No. Taylor? Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what's interesting to me after seeing this one, like previously we've seen the mid-80s in their 95% completed state mm. with a couple of those records. Suddenly we're staring at like a premonition or a mm. foreshadowing of the late 80s. In all sorts of ways. And I mean, it would be misleading to describe this record as ahead of its time, but it's it's probably the only the only one here. The the song Am video, which looks ahead to as far as nineteen eighty seven in its style and presentation, right? It's got this sort of cokey mm-hmm. wholesomeness to it, uh, like overproduction, Coca-Cola yeah. advert aesthetics, smoothed out world music cynical innocence uh long established artist past a certain age uh now contemporary again super clean ultra scrubbed street kids yes. wearing primary colors um <laughs> and a sort of incoherent message of peace and unity but it's mm. still a good record because all that stuff is superficial <laughs> in every sense um, the track itself still communicates a kind of old-fashioned yeah. warmth and softness, mm, mm. you know, which would slowly disappear for the most part over the next few years as as those stylistic annoyances became the actual substance of most American mm. commercial American records, you know, which all began to taste of coins, <laughs> which this one doesn't really. It just sounds like a, a nice record that, that does precisely what it's intending to do, mm. you know. And I've got to say, I'm impressed that Lionel Richie called the album that this is from Can't Slow yeah. Down, because if ever there was an artist whose work suggests a speeding car got <laughs> yes. out of control, <laughs> yes. it certainly is Lionel Richie. <laughs> 
And I, d- I do like the video because I remember yeah. every element of it. I remember the little kids popping and locking. I remember that chauffeur, you know, who's obviously caning it, throwing off his jacket and joining in the fun. And of course, that great <laughs> moment when the cop shows up. Yeah, and he doesn't kill anyone. No, everyone thinks he's going <laughs> to kneel on the neck, but yeah. no, he's just there to spin his baton around and to party with everybody. Bless him. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't matter even that Lionel Richie can't dance. His grin is wide enough to get through this this kind of four-minute <laughs> spectacle. And yeah. that's why, you know, MTV was still, 83, a hostile place for black artists. Yeah. But, but all night long went into pretty much heavy rotation immediately. Well, as it should um, do. I mean, because yeah. here you've seen, I mean, even, even, you know, in 1983, black people are still being portrayed as dangerous or different. The Beat It video, for example. Yeah. But here you've got a yeah, video yeah. where it's mainly black people... Look at them having a lovely time. The, the black people, a great bunch of lads, is the, the, the sentiment that's coming off this video. And it, it was much needed, I feel. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, Lionel actually, I mean, to, to be fair, yes, he is getting on mm. at this point, but he looks pretty good. I like the shiny PVC trousers he's got on. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you, after a while, you don't notice his Jafakan accent. You just kind of get, get on with the song. Yeah. And this is the song, after all. I mean, this propels Lionel Richie into, yeah, God tier of pop stardom, yeah. really. It makes the album sell shitloads. Mm. And, you know, I mean, he, end, it, you know, he ends up singing this, doesn't he? I think at the closing ceremony of the 84 Olympics. Yes. It becomes that exactly what it's set out to be. This uh, global, global anthem. This is it. As long yeah. as you're not Russian. <laughs> Neil, you referred to the Jafakan accent. I mean, the one thing that struck mm. me about Lionel Richie at this time is that when he was in the Commodores, he sounded so Southern. You know, a Southern American mm-hmm. thing. He was proper country. You know, listen to something like Ceylon. Yeah, yeah. And he's almost like he's an outcast or something. <laughs> and that's and that's yeah, gone yeah. now. And he did get slagged off a lot for being a crossover mm. artist by certain people. Well, I mean, he's clearly an accent sponge because I think I think that the, the conceptual process around all night long, he was genuinely yeah. at a Jamaican mate's house, and you know, he remembers in interviews perhaps doing that accent. Um, you know, even when discussing the song. But what's forgotten is just how big he was. Because this album that this is from... Yeah, is enormous. Enormous. I mean, he, he this wins the... Um, can't slow down it. It gets album of the year at the Grammys next year. And that's the, that's the year of, you know, what? The other things that are up for that award are things like Purple Rain and Born in the USA and Private Dancer, which we would all associate yeah. with that era. I don't think many people remember Can't Slow Down, but... but it was a it was no. a big winner, and 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 you know I think this is the song really that proved that he wasn't just a syrupy ballad merchant, and that he was now sort of pot royalty after this, and he he he, he stayed there for a good while. Yeah, it was, I can't remember off the top of my head. Is he wearing his pleated PVC trousers? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they are Taylor. I don't think they are. Oh, no pleats. That must have been a bit late. <laughs> I tell you what, what. One of the things I like best about this record is the completely unnecessary and sort of pernickety way it's titled all night long brackets all night (laughs) it's like a gift to excessively strict pop quiz question masters so you can say no the correct answer (laughs) is all night long brackets all night i'm never like if if i if if this came out on one of the rounds in a here comes quiz and like quiz which i need to do more of and i will do in the new year pop craze youngsters if my nonor played all night long someone would come back and write all night long brackets all night 
And when I read the answer, I would say, yeah, you you know, you got it right, but I don't tolerate smart asses, so you're not getting any bonuses <laughs> or anything. So, yeah. There's quite a lot of songs like that, though, where the general public don't actually know the real title of the song, right? Mm. Like the song that's actually called Do They Know It's Christmas? A lot of people think it's called Feed the World. Yeah. Right? Mm, or the mm. song that's actually called Bubba O'Reilly by The Who, which a lot of people think is called Teenage Wasteland. Yeah. And and you know that song Biko by Peter Gabriel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't actually realise the real title <laughs> of that song is The Phil Sivers Show. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about misunderstandings, I was so upset when I found out quite late in life mm-hmm. that Lionel Richie doesn't sing We're Gonna Party Karate. Because <laughs> <laughs> he just conjures up this beautiful image of Lionel Richie just turning away from the buffet and saying, Oh, you, you see that plank over there? Just get hold it up. Let me show you how fucking hard I am. <laughs> and then give me a brick to headbutt. He should have, because he's culturally appropriating all over the place. So he should have thrown that in. If he's going to have karamba and siesta and all of this stuff, yeah, why not a bit karate? You know? Yeah, it's, it's actually karamu, which is either a bushy shrub from New Zealand or it's the New Year's Eve do that's part of the Kwanzaa celebration. That's so, it. yeah, right on, Lionel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and fiesta forever sounds like he's bigging up a wank mag. Which oh, is yeah, it's great. fiesta forever, not siesta forever. That's me dreaming asleep. <laughs> so tired. <laughs> so the follow-up running with the night is malingering in the charts at number 41 this week but four weeks later it made it to number nine and he'd have his biggest hit in the uk when hello spent six weeks at number one in the spring of 1984 as neil's already pointed out all night long and richer featured in the closing ceremony of that year's summer olympics in los angeles and according to rolling stone magazine when the american tanks rolled into Baghdad nearly 20 years later they were greeted by the locals dancing to this song as Lionel Richie was massive in the Arab world. Indeed in December of 2006 Saddam Hussein joined in the tribute to Richie when he was secretly filmed dancing from the ceiling. Janice, still in her thigh-slapping costume, essentially implies that she's a hard-loving woman by saying that, contrary to rumour, the last song wasn't about her. Fucking hell, Janice, get you! Yeah, it's like if Thora Heard suddenly launched into a version of wet-ass pussy. It's really unsettling. It's off-brand, isn't it? Well, it would have been brilliant if, uh, while she was saying that, there was Peter Powell in the background being carried off on a gurney, <laughs> sticking his thumb up like the Help for Heroes logo. <laughs> what a shame they didn't give that line to Simon Bates, eh? That would have been something. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe it's wearing the kind of vaguely sexy pantomime outfit with a tricorn mm. hat and a frilly shirt that's, you know, yes. sort of like got, got to her a bit, you know bit of cosplay going on yeah yeah it's like she's really internalized this idea that this is supposed to be the the top of the pops christmas party 
It's like you find a later behind a filing cabinet with Simon Bates. Yes. (laughs) She then unintentionally disrespects the soon-to-be auntie entity when she fucks up the timing of her intro of the next act when she says they've had a great year apart from working with Tina Turner. (laughs) Oh, Janice. Yeah, what a heap of shit that was. I think by this time they're reading off autocues, aren't they? Because that's obviously someone slapped that up on autocue, but they didn't put a dash in or something. Oh. What she should have says, they've had a great year. Apart from working with Tina Turner, they've also right. done this. Oh. Or something like yeah, that. That, yeah that would make sense. I don't think she was cussing down no. Tina Turner. Although she's got that side to her, Janice. Occasionally the claws come out. Like, you remember her intro to Five Star? Mm. <laughs> They're always in the charts. They never seem to go away. But the act she introduces are Heaven 17 with Temptation. We've covered Heaven 17 in chart music number eight. And this, their eighth single, was the follow-up to Let Me Go, which got to number 41 in November of 1982. It's the second release from their second LP, The Luxury Gap, which got to number four in the LP charts for two weeks in May, and it finally put them into the top 40, taking six weeks to get to number two in the same month, held off the toppermost of the poppermost by True by Spandau Ballet. Here they are, in the studio, reunited with the singer Carol Kenyon, a session singer who had worked with Chris Rea, John and Vangelis and Dex's Midnight Runners, who didn't appear in the video because she thought her appearance fee was well minge, so they got a Bond girl in instead. Typical communist. <laughs> Chaps, I do believe it was us two that covered Heaven 17 uh, back in the day. And um, yeah. we, was it play to win? We did. Yes, yeah. it was played to win. Yeah, and we were uh, we're a bit iffy about it, but 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 this year they've uh, they've raised their game somewhat, haven't they? Mm. Yeah, this is just a storming record, isn't it? Isn't so- it? It's fucking mint, this song is. It's it's incredible. I think um, I'd only been sort of keeping very light tabs on their career up to this point. Um, you know, I, I knew who they were. Um, I was a huge Human League fan, but only um, since they went their separate ways. So for me, the Human League started with Sound of the Crowd. Mm. And it was only when Being Boiled got reissued and became a hit that I heard anything yeah with uh Ian Craig Marsh and Martin Ware on it I think yeah uh so you know um I think Let Me Go would have been the first thing I was really aware of, which is a wonderful record it is um, yes and that I'm, should have got into the top 40 I cannot hell. believe yeah yeah I cannot believe it didn't make the charts but um to this day you know I, I can just stick on the 12 inch of that and just lose myself in it it's, uh, mm. lose myself um it's yeah it's um that 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 alone would have justified their entire career but it's almost as if they looked at the failure of i'm sure it wasn't like that because they're both off the luxury gap album they would have all been recorded in the same sessions but it's almost as if they they looked at the failure of let me go to crack um the top 40 and thought fucking hell what can we throw at it now mm. and like okay all guns blazing boom and yeah yeah um temptation just probably um up there with something it's it's, it's almost sort of tainted love tier in terms of being yes. this sort of massive emblematic uh synth record of the 1980s mm. and got to talk about carol kenyon yes what a vocal performance yes it is staggering um i remember being convinced that she was g- going to become a massive solo star off the back of mm. this 
And she didn't. She had some, there was a single called Warrior Woman, I remember, which was pretty ropey, <laughs> that came after this. Uh, and then I, I guess she just went back to backing vocals. But it's a flamethrower of a vocal performance. It, is, it really yeah. is. And she's got this incredible presence. She's so forceful and dominant. Um, I love the, the way at the start of this, I don't know if you noticed, but she's standing with her back to the camera, just sort of looking at the wall, just ignoring the audience mm. and, until Glenn Gregory starts singing and then she steps forward. And it's her that's dominating the whole thing. I've got to yes. say, at the time, I thought she was really sexy as well. I think I was, mm. I think my, my, my 16 year old self was probably quite triggered by the, the combo of the leather pencil skirt and the lacy top and just her general kind of just you know a uh, just dominant per, uh, persona it was just quite yeah. uh, quite intoxicating i think at that time as as janice has pointed out they've been working with tina turner i wonder what it'd be like if she'd have sung on this it could have worked i mean they worked together um previously hadn't they with the british electric mm. foundation yeah let's uh, stay together um no ball of confusion um is what i'm talking about when it was just all oh, B- right yeah bef the, um yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on, on that album, they did Ball of Confusion with Tina Turner. And off the back of that, they did Let's Stay Together, which mm. um, I think was probably the first Tina Turner record I heard and then went back and discovered all the other yeah. ones. Yeah. And I, um, let, let's give Janice the benefit of the doubt and say she wasn't being sly and taking the piss there. Because I mm. I, I, I hope she wasn't anyway, because I, I thought it was a really good version. Yeah. And whatever Tina Turner may have become in the mid-80s, whether you like all that private dancer business or not, I really think that the stuff she did with Heaven 17 um, stands out. Mm. She'd have overwhelmed this record, though, I think. Um, yeah. It's better to have someone that, that no one's heard of who's just a good singer. you know. Because this record mm. is too good and too singular to be a vehicle for a guest star. Do you know what I mean? It's much yeah. better, much better having, having Carol Kenyon on it, even though she spends the whole clip uh, trying to, look like she's flirting with Glenn Gregory, which is a bit, you know, if Glenn Gregory <laughs> looks like the main baddie from Death Wish 3, um, <laughs> if he got a grip and smartened himself up and gave up his life for crime and frankly mystifying levels of unprovoked violence towards the general public uh, to bring mild Marxist satire to the dance floor. Um, no, the thing, right, the thing about this, all... There's a lot of records on this Top of the Pops uh, which you can hear ushering in new elements of the 80s. Uh, And then there's others that Mm. are clearly still living in the recent past. But this is a record which couldn't be more 1983 um, because it's it's at that perfect midway point between semi-subversive new pop and just sleek major label 80s music, you know, which is you would usually use as a put-down, mm. but I'm not necessarily using it as a put-down here. It's clever, but it's not distractingly clever, you know, and they're like, you know, communists yeah. or whatever, but they could pass as young conservatives. And the the whole thing is neither one thing nor the other, and that's fine because that's how 1983 was, you know. I'm sure it was mm. probably advertised in the pop press with mm. a very graphic design advert maybe with a a random rotated triangle in it uh, or a a strap line saying the board of directors of heaven 17 inc invite you to enjoy our <laughs> latest product or you know something like that mm. all that it's, it's, it's the last gasp of all that stuff before ztt monstered it basically yeah mm. uh, but it's great and it sounds strong 
because unlike the Adamant record, it's got a clear plan of how to get out of the early 80s. Yeah. Having learned all the appropriate lessons, it's musically interesting and it's it's sort of jerky in that contemporary way, but it doesn't sound forced. Although, obviously, it's a record that's the product of a lot of thought and it hasn't come naturally, but it doesn't sound forced. And it doesn't sound like they're trying to distract you from a lack of something. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm. the gears don't grind. And the only problem for them is that cruel fate would have it that on this program they are about to be followed by a record which also does all of that but seemingly effortlessly and to greater effect Mm. which is a shame but this does survive the comparison because what it's got is verve and and wit and a sort of youthful charm you know it sounds like a whole record it doesn't sound like a load of fragments of other possible records that have been bolted together which is always the danger with this sort of stuff. I mean, my abiding memory of this song was in May. It was a bank holiday weekend. Me and my mates went to Skegge on a, a, a Jolly Boys outing at my dad's local pub because there was going to be a Scooter Boys rally there at the same time. And we ended up in a club and I'm in there wearing my wraparound plastic shades <laughs> that I'd got from Pendulum Records. And I looked to write knob in them, but I didn't care. And it's rammed out with Scooter Boys who are, you know... Not the most outward-looking of people. Yeah. The DJ was playing all the Northern Soul stuff and a bit of the Meteors and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, this came on. And I knew the song, but hearing it in a place like that, it was like, fucking hell, what's he playing this for? It's got Sims on it. Mm. And I'm looking around, expecting people to kick the fuck off. And just everyone went berserk. Yeah. Everyone just went fucking mental over this song. Yeah. Because it is a, it's a Northern Soul song, isn't it? Yeah. It could have been, yeah. And I just think, if they'd have played Tainted Love, would that have got the same reaction? And I'm thinking, probably not. Well, Tainted Love, much as I love it, it's very flat. It's all on one level. It's just, mm. you know, whereas this, it's got it's got dynamics to it. It builds and builds. It's it, it's all mm. almost literally to a sexual climax. This is the thing that interests me about yeah. this record, actually, is that it is about sexual desire. And um, for synth acts of the early 80s, that was quite a rare thing. It was almost a forbidden thing. Yeah. It's as if all the acts of that era, all sort of um, neuromantic and synth bands, would um, probably name-check I Feel Love by Donna Summer as being one of the founding texts of what mm. they do. But they would take that and they would use it to sing something about feeling alienated in Krakow or something, yes. you know, or or it would be a, a, a sort of faintly maudlin thing about being heartbroken, but mm. there wouldn't be any sex to it. So it was as if Heaven 17 actually thought, do you know what, fuck it, we're going to go yeah. go back to that, that that kind of Donna Summer feeling and actually yeah. be, be unashamedly sexual. And it's probably just as well, given Taylor's not inaccurate description of Glenn Gregory, that <laughs> they do have Carol Kenyon there to sort of balance yes. it out and to help him uh, put that over. Mm. Um, Another thing about it is Taylor's right that it's a very 1983 sounding record But it does have the DNA within it Of some things that came later And I think particularly Handbag House um, The sort of diva-led Handbag House stuff Of the late 80s Stuff like Touch Me by the 49ers Or obviously Ride on Time by Black Box I'm not saying that Heaven 17 um, invented that stuff It was probably going to happen anyway But it it is almost a sort of... um, uh, early foreshadowing, shall we say, of that stuff. Mm. 
And you have to say, of all the records on this Top of the Pops, this is the one with the least predictable chord progressions, <laughs> which sort of means something, you know. Mm. It's like you really do wake up when, yeah, you're listening to what, as you say, is basically a Northern Soul song, but with these weird horror movie chords yes. underneath. <laughs> it does stop your brain from relaxing. Yeah, it gives it know? a tension. It gives it a dynamic to it, absolutely, yeah. Mm. I just wonder if at this point Heaven 17 was still holding out hope that their efforts to, uh, or their attempts to do something slightly different were going to be part of a general movement Mm. towards a less hokey and more thoughtful pop music or world, which I think a lot of those new pop people genuinely did believe for a while. I don't know. By this point, are they conscious they're fighting a losing battle, you know? Or have they just thought, fuck it, let's just do us? Yeah. Because it's weird how quickly that changed Mm. around this time, this fresh wave of cynicism, you know what I mean? And it's just before post-punk music lapsed into this eternal retro comfort food, Yeah, you know? I don't know if that's gone yet. Mm. There's enough sort of deliberate tension and and, uh, attention-grabbing stuff about this record. I mean, it's not revolutionary, but these... Unlike certain other acts on this Top of the Pops, they don't sound like they just can't wait to get home and open a can of beer in front of points of view (laughs) with Barry Peregrine Took. So the follow-up, Come Live With Me, got to number seven in July and they closed out 1983, their most successful year, with Crushed by the Wheels of Industry, which got to number 17 for two weeks in September. Meanwhile, Carol Kenyon returned to the charts a year later when she provided the lead vocals for Malcolm McLaren's Madam Butterfly, which got to number 13 for two weeks in September of 1984. And although her solo output never got higher than the high 80s, she also provided lead vocals on Paul Hardcastle's Don't Waste My Time, which got to number 8 in March of 1986. And although Diminishing Returns set in for the rest of the 80s, the Brothers in Arms remix of Temptation got to number four for two weeks in November of 1992. That, Pop Craze Youngsters, brings us to the end of part four of this episode. But trust me, we're not done. There's one more part to come, and you're going to get it in your tab tomorrow. But if you cannot wait, you know what you got to do. Shake that little arse of yours over to patreon.com slash chartmusic. Shove some of that money down this here G-string, and you can get the full episode without adverts right now. So, on behalf of everyone else, see you in a bit, and I strongly advise you to stay pop-crazed. Sharp music. 
Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty, Plenty Questions. questions. 